2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central,
1: and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find
2: yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 282. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have got one of the short story writers of the... Amazing and fantastic! Robert Reed coming up in the day's show. I'll tell you what's coming up. First up is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Then we get into the main fiction, which is The Golden Age of Story by Robert Reed. Then right at the end, we have a little promo for Dennis Lane, a new story, a new book by Dennis Lane. That is all coming up in the day's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, it's actually strange today. Just a curiosity there, the Two, two, son and daughter, and they're away. The, the son, the ju- junior, he, he, I think he's about 11 now. He's on like a school trip for a week. And the daughter's away for about three days as well. So they just made the me wife here. And I'm actually recording this show half seven in the morning. You know what I mean? It's just like, normally now, you know, family life and everything. like I say, give us half an hour. Give us an hour here. Slot it in there. We've had so much kind of time to ourselves. It's a bit like just wind whistling down, you know, and I've got up, I've made my wife's breakfast. she's away at work. It's half seven, I's like, I' just sit and do a show now Then do the show now, so uh, that's quite strange. Is this whats this what it's like when the kids, what we call over here, flingy the nests when they kind of up and move away. so oh, rather strange. I'm sure I'll get like to like it, mind you? <laughs> I mean freak down to myself.
3: Right then, well, we might as well, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Greetings and introgressions, my fine feathered listeners, and welcome to this March 2013 Science News Update. I'm your host for this wondrous wonder of wonderful science podcasts, Jim Campanella. We are just so brimming over with stories tonight, I will waste no time at all with preliminaries, but just get on with this. As usual, a couple of you loyal listeners have been on the lookout for science stories, so I've got two listener-submitted stories this evening. The first is from C.J. Urso, one of my former graduate students. C.J. wanted to make sure that I got the update on the Bigfoot DNA story that I mentioned here a couple of months back. You may remember that I reported on Dr. Melba Ketchum, Texas veterinarian, who told the world that she had isolated and characterized Bigfoot DNA from tissues collected throughout North America. You may remember at the time that I told you that Ketchum had not yet published her findings, but was trying to get a manuscript published that characterized her data. Well, as it turns out, Ketchum's manuscript never got through the peer review process to get published. Apparently, she was rejected out of hand by a number of journals. Well, apparently, the good Dr. Ketchum has a never-say-die personality because she decided she would publish by hook or by crook. She would not accept any scientists from questionable places like universities, threatening the credibility of her studies. So, in order to battle the obvious anti-Bigfoot bias out there, Ketchum purchased a scientific journal to publish her results after all the other journals had rejected her paper. The journal is called De Novo Scientific Journal*. And apparently Ketchum's paper is the only one published there, and the only article that has ever been published by it. Of course, the article still gives genetic evidence based on collection of purported Sasquatch samples that Bigfoot is not a new species but a hybrid of human females and an as-yet-unidentified primate species that mated 13,000 years ago. The abstract of the paper says the team of scientists examined 111 blood, tissue, hair, and other samples collected in 14 U.S. states and two Canadian provinces and extracted DNA and mitochondrial DNA. The 11 researchers, who decided they would link up their fates with Ketchum, titled their paper, Novel North American Hominids, Next Generation Sequencing of Three Whole Genomes and Associated Studies. In a commentary published February 13th on her Susquatch Genome Project website, Ketchum wrote, quote, It has been a long and tedious battle to prove that Susquatch exists. The mainstream scientific community possesses the worst scientific bias in the peer review process in recent history. Unquote. She then equated her treatment with that of Galileo, who was imprisoned for saying that the sun did not revolve around the earth, and stated, quote, We did finally pass peer review with a relatively new journal. Unquote. Of course, in that particular statement, she does not go on to actually point out that she acquired the journal and renamed it. Although eventually she does come clean and even links her website to another that says that it is ethical for journal authors to serve as their own editors. The journal De Novo proclaims itself to be a peer-reviewed journal, but Ketchum says that she is using hear reviews from a previous journal that rejected the manuscript. I have no idea how that could possibly be or what that means. I wanted to download a copy of this paper to judge its scientific worthiness for myself, but I discovered another seriously weird thing about this entire situation. De Novo claims to be an open-access journal. That normally means that a publication's papers are available to the public for free, and the journal makes its money by charging the author's whose papers have been accepted. However, DeNovo is charging $30 a pop for that Sasquatch paper. Yeah, I was a bit annoyed. Not only is this woman bypassing the normal publication process by vanity publishing her own paper, but she is also profiting on the paper and making it that much harder for the scientific community to really evaluate her work. I'm not sure whether this woman is ignorant of the way real science works or is just throwing her outré ideas in the face of the scientific community as an insult, or is simply a nit that neither knows nor cares about scientific opinion on her work. I'm being careful not to call the work a complete fantasy, but frankly, I can't judge its fantastical elements because I will not pay $30 for potential twaddle. We better get on to the next story before I blow a blood vessel. Listener Mark Zanfardino decided I should try my hand at the zombie craze while I still could, so he sent me this article from Sandia National Laboratory in New Mexico. Dr. Kerr has just reported his Sandia work with zombie cells in the Proceedings of the National Academy. Kerr has come up with a way of essentially making robot cells, starting with living tissue. The article calls them zombie cells, but... zombie would simply imply that they are dead and still performing living tasks. I have a feeling some brilliant journalist thought to call them zombie cells to help cash in on the zombie craze and get readers, but calling them zombie cells is just plain silly. It seems to be that what Kerr did was closer to the process of making a robotic Maria in Metropolis. How is that for an old reference? So what did he do? Well, he took mammalian cells and deposited silica on them essentially glass. The researchers then heated the cell up to burn off its protein. It seems to be something akin to making a 3D image using a mold. Basically, once all the protein is gone, he's left with an exact 3D representation of the cell in silica. The resultant hardened silica structures are faithful to the exterior and interior features of the formerly living cell and can survive greater pressures and temperatures than any type of living flesh ever could. He says, quote, These structures are three-dimensionally stable forms that resist shrinkage, even upon heating to over 500 degrees centigrade. The refractoriness of these delicate structures is amazing, He also says that these weird silica cell forms can perform some functions better than when they were alive, And here's where I begin to question the man's sanity. One of the things that proteins do is act as biological chemical catalysts. That is, they reduce the amount of energy needed to perform chemical reactions. This is actually an important function. Cells in general cannot survive the hundreds of degrees of temperature necessary to carry out most chemical reactions that you would do in a laboratory. They would die. In order for enzymes to act as catalysts, they have to have specific three-dimensional shapes and be able to change shapes as they interact with biochemicals. I have to admit I am unclear whether Kerr is just using the silica system to quickly preserve the inside of the cell, DNA, proteins, and all for use and examination later, or whether he is implying that the silica structures will work just as well as proteins do. If that is what he's saying, it makes no chemical sense to me. I guess part of my confusion lies in that Kerr is a materials scientist. An engineer, essentially. And I'm a biological scientist. And I think we simply are not speaking the same language. For example, Kerr says, quote, Since structure is important to function, stabilizing a catalyst in shape it evolved is important. Heat-hardened silica would stabilize and protect the still-present protein as it did its work, unquote. So I just don't get it. Did the protein get burned away or didn't it? His earlier description says that the protein was burnt off. Was it or wasn't it? Was it just the surface protein that was burnt off? And if it was the surface protein, the outer layer of a cell is not protein. It's mostly lipid, fat. And if he's talking about the protein, the enzyme being covered by silica, then there's no way that a substrate, whatever the protein is working on, can actually access it. It would be like being covered by a glass box. I believe that what Kerr is talking about is maybe a partial burning off at lower temperatures? Because he talks later on about a much more complete process that leaves a true mold of the cell in silica. He says that heating the cell to higher temperatures, greater than 400 degrees Celsius, evaporates all the organic material of the cell and leaves the silica in a kind of wax replica of a formerly living thing. The hardened silica-based cells display internal mineralized structures with intricate features ranging from nano to millimeter length scales. I think what Kerr is saying is very interesting. He's implying that one can preserve cells using his silica method so that substructures can even retain activity later if the silica is removed. But I'm not so impressed. To me, he's just describing a high-tech kind of embalming process. Okay, so part of my problem with Care may be based on communication issues between different kinds of scientists. But there are more fundamental types of communication problems that arise every day between people. I'm talking about communication between men and women. My wife will attest that we speak different languages. She will say one thing, and I will entirely misinterpret it. Or not understand what she is getting at at all. I suspect many men and women have experienced this. Well, Dr. Margaret McCarthy at the University of Maryland has just published a paper in the Journal of Neuroscience that examines why men and women, especially at an early age, do not communicate so well. McCarthy's paper suggests that levels of the brain protein, FOXP2, which is associated with language acquisition in humans, as well as vocalization in birds and mammals, may play an important role in these observed differences. McCarthy examined the levels of FOXP2 proteins in four-day-old rat pups and then compared those levels with the ultrasonic vocalizations that the pups made while in distress. She found that male pups not only had higher levels of FOXP2 in the cerebellum, amygdala, cortex, and thalamus, but they also produced nearly double the amount of vocalizations of female pups when separated from their mother. That led the mother rats to preferentially retrieve them over their female siblings. McCarthy wondered what might happen if they reduced the levels of FOXP2 in the pups. Using an intracerebroventricular injection, how's that for your word of the day, the researchers directly targeted the protein using a small interfering RNA that stops the brain cells from producing FOXP2. By decreasing FOXP2 in the pup, they eliminated the sex difference. As expected, the siRNA-treated males showed a decreased number of vocalizations two days after the treatment. While males are the more verbose of rat pups, human children show exactly the opposite pattern. Females are the more verbose in humans. So McCarthy looked at levels of FOXP2 in post-mortem tissue from five male and five female children with a mean age of four years old. They found human girls, unlike the rats, had a higher level of FOXP2 in the Broadbent's area, a brain area associated with language, than human boys did. McCarthy said, quote, These results could speak toward the evolutionary development of language. We see FOXP2 expressed differently in male and female rat pups as well as in a small number of human subjects. Unquote. McCarthy hopes to extend the findings. She's currently trying to determine the role that sex hormones may play in the expression of FOXP2 in the brain and how that may affect vocalization. Next story. Okay, I don't know how many of you are Spider-Man fans, but there is an ongoing sort of villain in the Spider-Man comics, and actually he just appeared in the recent mediocre teen angsty Amazing Spider-Man movie, Dr. Kurt Connors. Dr. Connors was actually a good guy, and depending on what version of the comics you read, he was either an independent researcher or a college professor. Peter Parker actually worked as his lab assistant at one point in one of the versions of the comics. Connors was a gifted surgeon who enlisted in the Army and was sent off to war. He performed emergency battlefield surgery on wounded GIs, but his right arm was injured in a blast and had to be amputated. After his return to civilian life as a biology researcher, Connors became obsessed with uncovering the secrets of reptilian limb regeneration. Working from his home in the Florida Everglades, he finally developed an experimental serum taken from reptilian DNA. He successfully regrew the missing limb of a rabbit and then chose to test it on himself. Connors ingested the formula and his missing arm did indeed grow back. However, the formula had a side effect. Connors was subsequently transformed into a reptilian humanoid monster who was dubbed the lizard by the Daily Bugle. Spider-Man discovered Connor's situation during a trip to Florida and was eventually able to use Connor's notes to create an antidote to restore him to his human form and mentality. Okay, what does any of this foray into the geeky side of me have to do with actual science? Well, Dr. Thomas Braun of the Max Planck Institute for Heart and Lung Research is the author of a new paper published January 20th in Genome Biology that Dr. Kirk Connors would probably have really appreciated. When a newt loses a leg, or part of its heart or eye, among other organs, it can replace the missing body part by turning on genes that coax new cells to grow. Knowing how this process works on the molecular level could help treat human disease, but the identities of the genes involved have largely remained a mystery. Now, Braun has made inroads into this field by combining methods to pinpoint genes with increased expression during the regeneration process, along with their corresponding proteins. This new approach enabled identification of several new proteins that have never been found in other organisms. So Braun's team focused on the transcriptome, the NEWT. That is the collection of all the mRNA transcript molecules in the animal's cells. Much of the newt's large genome, it is 10 times bigger than any mammals, consisted of introns that are not actively translated into protein. The team assembled a transcriptome with 120,000 non-redundant transcripts that included transcripts from all stages of regeneration of various organs. Some of those transcripts were similar to those found in other organisms. But Braun and his colleagues wanted more information on specific proteins involved in regeneration, not just transcripts that may not necessarily get translated into proteins. So they isolated proteins from newt tissues, including heart, eye lens, tail, liver, and spleen during regeneration. They characterized the proteins using mass spectrometry and then compared the protein sequences with the transcripts they found. The researchers found 55,000 peptides that matched up with 14,000 transcripts from their earlier experiments. More than 10,000 transcripts encoded multiple proteins, and more than 500 peptides have not been identified in any other organism previously. Braun said, quote, It was indeed a surprise that there are numerous new genes not found in other organisms. Whether this is directly correlated with regenerative capacity, we don't know yet. Unquote. For now, the results don't give an immediate answer to how newts and related animals mediate the regeneration of any body parts, but instead it offers a starting point for scientists who have lacked concrete genetic data on the amphibians before. So Dr. Connors may have to wait a while yet to get that arm regenerated without turning into a giant lizard, and we may not be all that far off from when such a feat will be possible. Since we are on the topic of pop culture and regeneration, let's talk six million dollar man for just a second. In the original 1970s TV show, Steve Austin was an astronaut who was deathly injured in an accident and had two legs and one arm and an eye replaced by cybernetic parts. One of the problems I've always had with the show was in the credits when they show the schematics of the bionic eye. They showed an electronic eye built backwards into the head along with an electronic optic nerve and a new electronic optic tectum section to be fused into the brain. I was never able to figure out how Colonel Austin could see with that much machinery being jiggered into his head. I never understood the interface, and it turns out I'm not alone. In the Journal of Experimental Biology this month, Dr. Douglas Blackiston from Tufts University explains why he thinks we would have trouble attaching an eye to the brain when there is no longer an optic nerve. And he has a solution to it. Here is what Blackiston says as he states his problem. Quote, Implanting an artificial or biological replacement eye would require connecting it to the nervous system in some way. For those with damaged optic nerves or those missing the eye completely, retinal implants are not possible treatment options, unquote. So see, that's exactly my problem with Steve Austin's biotic eye. No eye or optic nerve. So here's the question. If connection through the optic nerve is not possible, Could replacement eyes connect somewhere else? And just how hardwired are our nervous systems to expect data from specific organs in predetermined locations? Blackiston realized that he could use blind xenopus tadpoles to investigate how adaptable the brain and central nervous system is to receiving information from abnormally located eyes, what are commonly called ectopic organs. To begin, Blackiston induced blindness in the tadpoles by surgically removing their eyes with some of the blinded amphibian patients also receiving donor eyes that were transplanted onto unusual positions along their torsos and tails near the spine. Even though it sucked to graft over 200 tiny donor eyes, the next step was even worse. Blackiston needed to develop a test to determine whether the transplanted ectopic eyes allowed the blind tadpoles to actually see. He said, quote, While physiology can show that an eye sends electrical signals in response to light, a behavioral regime is necessary to show that the brain is receiving such data and processing the information in a meaningful way, unquote. After nearly a year of hard work, he came up with a sight test. He placed the amphibious subjects in a well where half of the dish was illuminated with red light and the other half with blue light, which they inverted at regular intervals. During training sessions, whenever the tadpoles ventured into areas bathed in red light, they received a little warning zap of electricity. After a break, the tadpoles were tested to see whether they had learnt to associate the red light with electrical punishment and whether they would stick to the blue side of the dish. While the blind tadpoles never showed a preference for blue light, Six tadpoles with donor eyes behaved like their full-sighted relatives and showed a learnt desire to remain in the safe, blue illuminated areas. These fortunate six tadpoles obviously were able to see through their new ectopic eyes. Of the 134 tadpoles, only 24% had traceable neurons extending toward the spine. It was within that latter group that the six lucky tadpoles with a color vision fell. Blackiston said, quote, "The tadpole's ability to see when ectopic eyes are connected to the spinal cord and not directly to the brain was stunning. I believe that future biomedical treatments for sensory or motor disorders may not need to target the original brain locations to restore function. It is clear that our findings could radically change our future approach to regenerative medicine for a wide range of disorders." Unquote. So this has to lead me to wonder, when a kid in the future says that his mom has eyes on the back of her head, you may have to take him literally at that. The next story of the night is about smart cells. Synthetic biologists have finally created bacterial cells that can perform logic functions and store the results. Dr. Timothy Liu, an electrical engineer, and his team have built the first circus in bacterial cells that combine both basic aspects of computing logic functions, and memory. They're able to encode data permanently into DNA, and that data has been passed on through 90 generations of bacteria. In 2009, Lou and his colleagues designed a synthetic gene circuit in E. coli that could count up to three. Their system utilized a chain of enzymes called recombinases that activated three genes in a row, like a line of dominoes, to count. Using that work as their inspiration, Lou designed new circuits that use the recombinases to cut out stretches of DNA, flip them, and insert them back into the genome. In that context, flipping a piece of DNA up or down is like turning it on or off, or a one or a zero in binary code. If two bits of DNA bookend a piece of regulatory DNA, like a promoter that activates a gene, the bits act as a two-input logic gate detecting multiple inputs, and then outputting an answer. In this case, the output would be either the gene is activated or the gene is not activated. Because the actual DNA of the bacterial genome is stably altered, the input is stored as permanent memory. The team demonstrated that the cells retained the memory for at least 90 generations, as I stated a little while ago. Applying their technique, they built a system in which recombinases targeted DNA sequences around promoters for a gene-controlling green fluorescent protein production. They created 16 two-input Boolean logic functions in individual cells. In one instance, for example, the recombinases flip both target DNA sequences on, and the promoter activates the GFP gene, and the cell expresses GFP and begins to glow. Once the sequences are flipped, they can't be returned to their original state, so if Lou wanted to read the cell's history of inputs, he could either measure the cell's GFP output and deduce the inputs or sequence the cell's DNA where the data is stored. Lou says, quote, A genetic circuit with logic and memory could be used to track whether disease-related genes are turned on and off in an organism as a way to study disease progression. Or in biotechnology, the system could be used to program a cell to produce a drug at a certain level. Eliminating the need for constantly stimulating the cell and future offspring of the cell would also produce the drug, I'm just imagining the actual cellular smartphones that people will get injected into their heads very soon. No more fumbling for that big clumsy phone from your purse or jacket. No more ringing, bothering anybody nearby. It'll all be in your head. Just pay your bills on time, though, or AT&T will give you an antibiotic to kill your new cell phone off. The final story of the night comes from the 20th Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections that's taking place this week in Atlanta. This story is based on a talk given by Dr. Deborah Persaud of Johns Hopkins University. The oral seminar was entitled, Is There Hope for HIV Eradication? And I guess there may be. I'm always leery of claims of any kind of viral cure, So far in human history, the only viral cures that have been pulled off have been with the immune system. We have damn fine treatments now for all sorts of nasty retroviruses like HIV and herpes, but still no cures. Given that, Dr. Persaud and her colleagues report on an infant whose exposure to HIV was confirmed through review of maternal HIV antibody and plasma viral load tests, including HIV drug resistance testing. The infant infection was documented using standard HIV enzymatic methods and plasma viral loads. The baby was treated with the full spectrum of antiviral and antiretroviral agents available. Although HIV was clearly detected in the baby for the first two months of life, a viral load dropped to almost nothing by the second month of antiviral treatment. Now for the interesting part. When they stopped the antiviral treatment at 26 months of age, no viral load was detected in blood and no HIV-specific antibodies were detected with any standard clinical assays. In short, the child showed no signs of infection and appeared to be in a state of functional HIV cure. The authors concluded with the following statement, quote, this cure in an HIV child suggests that very early antiviral treatment may prevent establishment of a latent reservoir and achieve a cure in children, I think that's great, and it does give some hope to kids infected with HIV when they're born. But I am wondering why we are not seeing more of these child cures. Surely every child born with an HIV infection is being given antiviral treatments. If this group is reporting on it, then a complete cure must be very rare, and we're not seeing a lot of these children being treated with the antiviral treatments getting better. Not to be a gloomy Gus here, but I'm just wondering whether the situation isn't more complicated than Dr. Prasad is making out. It is possible that this one child is the rarity and that there aren't going to be too many more who are going to be cured in quite the same way. On the other hand, I could be wrong, and Perhaps this is the beginning of a trend with new drugs being able to help these children. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Don't self-publish your science manuscripts or inject lizard serum. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, what
2: can I say? Oh man, just like 30 minutes of goodness there, thank you so much. So, before we get into the main fiction, as you know, this is kind of a month of kind of trying to rally the troops and trying to get this Starship so as backside off the ground. We've been, it's been horrible to be quite honest, because it's not just... You know, now I kind of... And maybe that's pressure on me, but, you know, there's now the responsibility of the District of Wonders, and I don't want to kind of let everybody down on them sites. You know what I mean? Like you say, Larry's been doing... It's over a year there now, Tears to Terrify. And, by God, he's... He, the audience Larry's built up over there, it's not that far behind Starship Sova. You know what I mean? It's, I think the last count, was he's into, like, 3,000 there. So that's just awesome. And, I, like you say it has to have funding now it's it's just like there's there's no other kind of way about it and i'm you know the, the debate in there now and you know putting kind of feelers out do we have to go through a, like a kickstarter program to kind of get some funds because it just it just never stops you know this kind of cycle of cycle of bloody kind of paying things and sorting things and then i guess one of the biggest there thing now is like this dropbox and dropbox you know don't get it wrong it's the best kind of product out there to kind of to to make things worthwhile. We've tried only in different services to kind of share files and, you know, host files so we know, like, audios. Because, you know, Starship Sofa's probably got about 60 stories there narrated, ready. That's a kind of chunk. You know, that's a big size. And, like I said, the Dropbox account is just stupid price. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, I sat down with Mrs. Sofa the other week there. (laughs) We we came to the conclusion that it was best if I didn't dip into the house fund. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did, love. Him. Yes. <laughs> so this is where I've kind of got to, you know, um, kind of rely on you really to kind of help out. But I've got a, a kind word from
3: a few friends. This is Peter Watts, author of relentlessly upbeat and cheerful science fiction, here to ask you. Is there anything worth living for? 30 species a day going extinct, the whole planet running a fever, civilization in the grip of corporate sociopaths and delusional nutbars in funny hats who witter on about the wrath of some invisible sky fairy. Who needs it? Why not just check out now and save yourself a lot of grief? Well, I, for one, have found a reason to go on living. It's called Starship Sofa, and you could do a lot worse with your savings than invest in becoming a monthly subscriber hey, it's not like your money's going to be any good after the zombie apocalypse anyway.
2: There you go, Mr. Pete. I actually, you know what's lovely? That's kind of one little kind of pleasure I've got, you know what I mean, when we're kind of going through all this kind of, I get the chance to have a chat with people, you know what I mean, although we're kind of scraping our arse off the ground in debt. It's nice to kind of, Pete, will you do us a favour? And I phone Pete up on Skype there and, just a lovely guy, do you know. What I mean, he just you wanna just give a big hug, do you know what I mean the guy's as mad as a box of frogs, to be quite honest. But it was lovely to have a kind of chat with him. And I've got some kind of ideas for future kind of fundraising things with you know involving Pete there. He's keen for anything, to be quite honest. And it was it was lovely to kind of have a chat with him and get some words off him there. So, you know. And that's the whole point, you know. Donations, you know, like monthly donations. If you can consider, you know, becoming a monthly donator, that would be fantastic. Just each week or oh, each month, sorry, it just helps to kind of keep the show going. Or oh, one time donations, you know what I mean? It's just fantastic, you know. Let us get into then the main fiction, which is The Golden Age of Story by Robert Reed. This came out in the 2013 edition of Asimov's, edited by Sheila Williams, you know, what I mean? just. Love that, um love that magazine and just love Sheila as well. What a lovely person. I had Sheila once on a like a writer's workshop and the knowledge she's got, man, you know what I mean, how to kinda of get a story up there and, and sort it out. It's just staggering. But it's all about Robert Reed and we've played a few stories by Robert Reed, but it's he's gained it's one of these writers that from I think it was 1986, Treading In the Afterglow came out. This is his first short story, right up until this this one there now, the golden age of story. Um, stories, you know, we've played, we've been look, lucky enough to play a couple of Robert's stories and, you know, a couple of his stories. We well, had one of them put to artwork as well. So that was just staggering. Some news of Bob, if anyone's interested. I'll put a link on the Bob's site because what, a, you know what I mean? Just one of these kind of power writers that's come up with some cracking ideas. Bob's novella, Catalyst Base, is from the kind of November, December 2012 issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction, is now officially. Nebula Award nominee. Go on there, Bob. And also in February, he's had four stories and his new novella collection appear on the Locust Magazine's recommended reading list. If anyone's interested, Bob's got some collection of his short stories out there. In 2001, he put out The Raven Dream, then Buffalo Wolf, then Less Than Nothing and Shadow Below, 2009. So you can get a kind of taste of what what Robert's all about with his writing. His latest collection is The Eater of Bone and Other Novellas, which came out in 2012 by PS Publishing. This story is narrated by Iba Armakas. Iba is an emerging filmmaker from Seattle. She was raised by historical sword fighters, and despite their process for martial and historical accuracy, The experience forever tied her to the fantasy science fiction genre. She has a script at the Austin Film Festival and in 2012 won the Jeff Archer Screenwriting Award. Go on there. She's currently in post-production of her first feature film, a dark fantasy set in the Pacific Northwest. Would you believe? So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
4: The Golden Age of Story by Robert Reed. Read by Ibar Monkis. The Saint of Tobago. The room looks like a doctor's office, efficient and sunny and laudably clean. The physician wears white, the white wall behind him decorated with diplomas, as well as photographs of a handsome, happy family. Like any professional on the brink of respectability, there is an obligation here to use charm and the right words to help win the case. The physician offers a warm hand to his prospective client. The client sits, and he sits, and Mr. Green soon becomes my good friend, Patrick. Both of the men are American, but the ground beneath them happens to be Caribbean, and the physician's accent has been pleasantly warmed by the tropics. A wise, beguiling smile rides easily on the tanned face. He rolls his office chair around the desk, sitting closer to his very important guest. Now, Patrick, he says, I'm sure you have questions about the cocktail. I will answer whatever you ask, and we will discuss the potential pitfalls, few as they are. But before we address your concerns, I want you to appreciate my circumstances, my point of view. Would that be all right? The client wants to relax. Sure, he says, sitting back in his chair. The cocktail can be highly effective, Patrick. But that isn't the only reason that I'm offering it. You see, to me, this is a very personal endeavor. As a young man, I struggled in school. I barely graduated from college. And for the next several years, frankly, I was unemployed and rather depressed. But then, I was selected for a large clinical trial where I was fortunate enough to be included in the Lot 9 cohort. A combination of nootropic drugs was administered. Now, taken individually, none of these compounds were particularly effective, but together, in the proper proportions, they led to spectacular successes. More than 95% of my cohort saw clear, persistent improvements, and what I gained from my experience was everything. Cognitively, 20 points were added to my IQ. Creatively and emotionally, I felt reborn. Suddenly, I was a good student, an excellent student, and if not for my past grades, I could have attended any famous medical school. But, despite my circumstances, I have achieved quite a lot. I have degrees and a thriving practice, though I should point out that doing routine work in a more civilized setting would result in a much larger paycheck. (laughs) He pauses. Just for a moment. Then, with a slow, confident voice, he says, And now, Patrick, please tell me your thoughts. The client blinks, sorting through his emotions. Not wanting to appear ignorant, he mentions his research into Lot Nine and its occasional dangers, and of course, he has read everything he can find about the physician and his small clinic. Patrick is obviously not a bookish man, yet. The physician acts heartened by the scholarship. Of course we just met, he says. I don't know you, except from your medical history. But your circumstances seem obvious enough. You have reached a critical age, Patrick. Forty years old, and it seems the rest of your life is laid out before you. Maybe you are a bright boy in school, a very good student, but your successes have never matched your promise. At least, not like your teachers or parents expected. And it hurts, knowing that you are no longer the young prince bound for grand kingdoms. Smiling, the client says, That's a nice image. The physician nods agreeably. Tell me, Patrick, what kind of work do you do? I'm a traveling rep for a large manufacturer. You're a salesman. Yes. That's not a career for the foolish. I uh, guess not. For instance, can you remember every face that you meet? And how about the names attached to those faces? But even those talents wouldn't be adequate, would they? In my experience, the best salespeople commit every detail to memory. Spouses' names, children's birthdays, and so on. This is the rich, ingratiating noise that earns your competitors their hefty commissions. A great marketer is a genius with charm, and I suspect that you are willing to pay a hefty price to enter those ranks. The client says, Maybe. But his posture and face claim otherwise. The decision has already been made. The physician sits back, idly playing with one of the buttons on his new white jacket. Side effects, he says. Pardon me? That's what worries you, doesn't it? The client drops his gaze. Let me ask you this, Patrick. Do you know why children lie? Maybe. But I'm not talking about casual fibs meant to avoid their chores. No, I mean their gigantic stories about invisible friends and grand, wondrous adventures. The latest research has some crackerjack insights into the development of intelligence. Specifically, how our minds learn to juggle impossible quantities of data, organizing and streamlining the resident mess so we can pick and choose whatever knowledge is needed for the given situation. I've read all about that, the client claims. The physician nods and lets go of the button. The lying child builds a world of impossible elements. When he tells his parents that this has happened or that didn't happen, the lie serves a very good purpose. A normal, bright boy is pushing his young mind into a higher, more powerful state, which is a reasonable strategy if you think about it. Scientists and stockbrokers need good minds, but nobody is as intelligent or half as shrewd as the compulsive liar. That's what the six-year-old is seeking. Like any muscle, his mind needs training. Any mind, even ours, would respond to the same training. If only that old trick worked on our sluggish adult brains. But it does work, says the client. Lot nine, the nootropics you sell. They do amazing things. Usually, but not always, the physician cautions. Usually is better than never. No other visible option can be seen. But I have an obligation to explain the negatives, says the physician. These treatments are not cheap, and I'm sorry, but they're not free from risk. I know that, Patrick says. Less than one person in one hundred suffers a bad reaction. Bad meant death, usually by suicide. And that's why the original drug trial was closed down prematurely. And that's why, years later, brave souls have to visit a certain backwater to chase down this groundbreaking procedure. The physician leans close again. At this point, if you will indulge me, I would like to sing my own praises. Frankly, nobody has my experience with Lot 9. In the perfect world, we would tweak the cocktail's mixture for the better, lower the risks, and improve the efficacy. But that would require mammoth studies and millions of dollars. So no, for now, I use the elixirs that worked on me, and we will monitor your progress and your health, physically and mentally. I don't care about the odds, Patrick says. I want a new mind. That is an appealing goal, the physician agrees. Besides, what you call a side effect sounds like a blessing to me. What do you mean? Compulsive, highly imaginative bullshit, says Patrick, his face brightening. Well, I am a salesman, after all. Oh, (laughs) no, that's a fair point. And the lying pretty much vanishes when you go off the stuff, says Patrick. Isn't that right? The physician nods and sits back, and after a moment and some careful thought, He says, yes, as soon as you stop using the pills, honesty returns. The Revolution Man He saw her face for the first time ten minutes ago, and he hasn't bothered to learn her name yet, but he likes that face very much, and her body, and how she sits on the stool beside him, listening to his stories, tilting herself just enough that whenever he wants he can look down the front of her shirt. He tells her about meeting the King of England. He talks about his sister's sickness and how he donated his bone marrow, and thank God she's on the mend. Then, because it seems like the right time, he mentions what he does for a living, which isn't a bad living, except that he has to travel all the time, all around the world, and he feels sorry for his three cats sitting in that big house with nobody but his housekeeper, sweet old Mrs. Ramfin. At that point, he pauses to sip his dark ale, She's having a weak beer and some fun. I'm stupid, I know, she says, staring back to his job. What is a geopolitical fundamentals analyst, and why are you so special? We aren't that special, he says. I thought not. (laughs) She laughs. The airport bar has three televisions, each tuned to a different network. He can't watch more than one screen at the same time, much less study the woman, too. No pharmaceutical trickery achieves that magic. But there are plenty of free moments when he can check baseball scores and headlines and notorious celebrities. "'But I bet you're good at what you do,' she says. He shrugs, his best cocky smile shown in profile. "'Give me example,' she says. "'From my work, you mean. Can you talk about it?' He says, "'Sometimes.'" "'Do you work for the government?' Sometimes, he says again, with a slightly different tone. Tell me more, she says. He intends to do just that. But then a familiar face enters the airport bar. The newcomer looks at the woman first, and then notices the man sitting beside her. His body goes rigid. He sucks at his teeth. Then, dropping into the first empty chair, he stares at the ceiling while waging war with his temper. The woman watches her companion, grinning with anticipation. I'll tell you a secret, he says, if you hold my seat for me. With my life, she says. That's the attitude. He leaves his beer behind. The only real disappointment about Lot 9 is that it doesn't play well with alcohol. The occasional taste is fine, but more than one drink in a day leads to sloppy thoughts, and worse. The newcomer sees him and pretends a smile. A tight, quick voice saying, Hey, Pat. Claude. Gonna sit with me. No thanks, my beer's getting lonely. Yeah, but the lady looks happy. Pat glances over his shoulder, and then back at the salesman sitting alone at the little round table. How are you doing, Claude? The man stares at him. How's Gail and her sore back? How's your son Fergus? Did he ever make the first string? Stop it. Stop what?
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
4: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know. Pat says, you're still pissed about Cincinnati. That was my account, Claude says. I had those bastards for 10 years, which is a good long while, and you did well with them. Fuck you, Pat. Hey, Claude, don't let our grudges hold us back. The salesman doesn't want this conversation. Tired of feigned politeness, he considers standing up and bashing a chair over his competitor's skull. Attitude, Pat says. That's what counts in the world. God, what is it about you anymore? We've known each other for forever, but for the last year, year and a half, you've been this big league asshole. And I'm sorry for that, he says no, you're not. I am, Pat says. And let me prove it to you. Go back to Ohio. Win back your old clients, if you can. What about you? Pat laughs. Oh, I'm off that circuit, for now. What do you mean? Salesman of the Year got a promotion. No, no, I've jumped into an entirely different game. Smiling and nodding, Pat says. I'm selling a new line of product. What line? Pharmaceuticals. Drugs? It's Specialized merchandise with some wonderful effects. In fact, if you want to arrange a consultation, I could give you the chance to experience the benefits for yourself. Claude laughs. What the hell do you know about medicine? I know enough to be named the top representative for North America. Not you. Me. And if I didn't like you, Claude, I wouldn't bother offering you a taste. But frankly, You could use the help, and God knows that dumb shit boy of yours would benefit from the IQ boost. Claude's face is red and sweaty. Busting a chair over the man's head has never sounded better. Pat reads the body, and just before the situation explodes, he retreats, saying, Oh, well, when you change your mind, come find me. The woman continues to defend his beer and his stool. On E, a young actress is talking about some kind of Buddhist transformation that has left her wise beyond her years. On CNN, two politicians are lying even more than usual. And on ESPN, a champion poker player is reading faces and robbing his competitors at will. The woman bends invitingly as her new friend returns. He looks at her breasts and her eyes, and he spins the glass of ale with one relaxed hand waiting for the question. So, what are you going to tell me? I'm not a geopolitical fundamentals analyst, he says. I guessed as much, she says. No, he says, I'm working for somebody big. Somebody I doubt you've ever heard of, and together, my associate and I are going to tear down this world and build another the summer of blinding brilliance. Since retiring as a biology teacher, Larry has supplemented his pension by working summers in a program geared towards gifted students. Sessions are six days long, and the kids come from every end of the state, filling the one-time Girl Scout camp with adolescent vigor and their rabid enthusiasm for saving Mother Earth. A few might know each other to begin with, but most begin as strangers. For them, The greatest fun is getting to know each other when they aren't talking compost or phosphate cycles, and in that, the summer's first sessions seem normal enough. There's always one student that dominates. The easy winner this time is supposedly named Fergus, but the boy prefers to be called Mitch. An hour after his arrival, Fergus Mitch is everybody's best new friend. Tall and big-shouldered, he has a happy, loud voice dripping with humor and better than most 17-year-olds, he knows how to tell stories. With buoyant ease, he describes his school and its fabulous teachers and his fascinating high-energy family. Girls keep asking about his Facebook page, but he insists he doesn't have one. The social media are a black hole of time, and his life is too, too busy for bookwork. Somewhere inside his intense little biography is the tidbit that he is Jewish, Except his last name isn't Jewish, and he seems awfully blonde. Discrepancies noted by one mildly suspicious boy. But the boy quickly adds that he's Jewish on his mother's side, and for his own sake, he hasn't decided to be that way or like his Buddhist father, unless, of course, he goes Native American, which is a really neat faith full of kick-ass ideas. Mitch is never the smartest character in his own stories. That's one of his charms. And despite reservations and the gap in their ages... Larry finds himself among the boy's admirers. Teacher and student are talking late one night, or rather, Mitch is talking. He has three brothers, each one a better athlete than he will ever be. Their household is littered with football trophies and wrestling trophies, and with a flair for detail, the boy describes heroic games where one of the siblings achieved some incredible feat despite a broken hand or a fever or other affliction that would have left a weaker soul in a hospital bed. At that point, Larry still wants to be convinced by the show. But then Mitch asks the old man what kind of sports he played as a teenager. Larry mentions quail hunting with his father, and that unleashes a fresh torrent. You aren't ever allowed to belong to the boy's family, unless you are a crack shot and know wilderness skills. He says that every fall, his dad trucks him and his brothers out to Wyoming to hunt big game. That doesn't seem like a very Buddhist activity, or very Jewish for that matter, but Mitch doesn't give people time for reflection. Suddenly, he's pitching a big tent in a public campground, surrounded by RVs and the snowy range. In the middle of the night, the boy steps outside to pee. The trees are a lot more inviting than a stinky restroom, so he marches down the trail until he is alone holding the flashlight in one hand. He's doing his business when he hears a grunt and turns the beam, catching a brown bear, shuffling up the trail toward him. What kind of bear? Larry asks. A brown bear, the boy repeats confidently. Larry knows something about bears. You mean a black bear that's brown, he says. Or do you mean a grizzly? Mitch blinks once before saying, Oh, it was a grizzly bear. That is the moment when doubt starts to win the battle. But the story has momentum, and Mitch presses on. Yeah, that bear was coming straight my way, he says. And you know what you're not supposed to do. You don't run away from a bear. Except I was 14 and scared, and it was the middle of the night, and I hadn't finished pissing yet. So, yeah, I ran, which was stupid, I know. But I had a lead, and I'm fast. Faster than I look, I heard the bear snort and come after me. He was closing fast, but I reached the parking lot and saw a big pickup truck, and I threw myself over the tail and started looking for a tire iron for any weapon. But the truck bed was clean enough for surgery. So what I did, I laid there waiting, praying to the great spirit to save me. Then, after a couple of forevers, I lifted my head and saw nothing. No bear. Just an empty parking lot, which made me wonder if the bear was even real. Larry has his own big doubts. Anyway, Mitch says, I slipped back into our tent, and after shaking inside my bag for a couple hours, I fell asleep. I slept past breakfast and I had to pack in a hurry. There was an old man sitting outside an RV when we left the Bighorns. My dad waves at this guy, telling us, I just had a nice chat with that fellow. Dad didn't look at any of us watching the road. It seems he couldn't sleep last night. Our neighbor was sitting inside his camper, drinking his tea in the dark, when suddenly, out from the trees comes this kid. He doesn't get a good look at the kid's face, but he was running hard, his little man swinging free. And then the kid did this neat flip into the bed of the pickup truck, which was about the craziest thing he'd ever seen. Crazy, right up until this huge, huge male grizzly comes running out of the forest, maybe 800 pounds, as if he owned the place, it walks right up into the middle of the parking lot before snorting once and going back the way it came. Larry laughs quietly, embarrassed for the boy. He knows this story. He first heard it years ago, one of those wilderness legends that gets a new life with each generation. And to his credit, Fergus Mitch immediately notices the lack of enthusiasm. Understanding where he went wrong, the boy instantly calculates how best to get out of the situation, which leads to long stretches of his arms and legs and the perfectly understandable claim that he is exhausted and needs his five hours of sleep. All in all, nothing too unusual is at work here. There's always some kid who plays rough with the truth. The scales of the lies is impressive, however. Maybe the young man needs professional help and perhaps strong chemical help, but Larry keeps his lucid advice to himself. He isn't a psychologist, and no students are in danger. Besides, the other kids will soon catch Mitch at his game. That's what always happens. Stories build, the fabrication's growing ever stranger, and like any wall full of flaws, cracks will appear just before the whole shabby structure tumbles down. Except, in this case, that isn't what happens. Mitch stops making mistakes. Story after story is told, and they form a seamless epic whole. By the end of the week, the wisest, sharpest students haven't noticed the discrepancies, and everybody remains Mitch's buddy. And before they leave, the three prettiest girls have to kiss the boy, demanding to talk to him again soon. Then the father arrives to drive the liar home. Elk hunters don't usually drive old Camrys and have the pasty skin of indoor people. Larry means to offer a hand and helpful warning. But then, still another girl runs up to kiss her new boyfriend goodbye, ruining the opportunity. And before Larry can feel any guilt, a fresh group of youngsters arrive from the farms and little cities and the wealthy urban enclaves. Five of those students are at least as outrageous as Fergus Mitch. Gathering around the campfire, the five liars begin to exchange impossible stories about witnessing flying saucers and their alien crews, and then how they converse with the creatures that came from the stars, and when that isn't interesting enough, from far beyond the boundaries of our little universe. The next morning, Larry meets with the program administrator. Our smartest kids are crazy. He warns her. You should hear them. That pretty redheaded girl was abducted by giant centipedes that impregnated her and then stole all 12,017 embryos. The administrator is named Jasmine. She's 30 years old and new to the program this summer. In the course of the first week, the two of them have spoken just twice, and then only in passing. Jasmine smiles wanely at the older man. First of all, we need to respect our students, she begins. And to me, respect involves allowing these girls and boys ample freedom to craft their stories however they choose. Well, I guess, Larry says. And secondly, we are facing a much larger problem here. About these kids? Not them, no. Then who? Mitch, she says. That good-looking fellow from the first group. Baffled, Larry shrugs and waits. He came to me the other day, Jasmine says. We had a long conversation and you are mentioned. Me? Nothing is actionable, of course. I would have taken measures if there was more than a general perception at work. But the boy was upset, claiming that you looked at him in a certain way. Larry feels numb. Of course, he was probably overreacting, she adds. He's entitled to be sensitive since he was so badly abused as a child. Abused, he repeats. She nods, watching him carefully. Larry forces himself to breathe, to speak. You don't believe anything he claimed, do you? Oh, I don't know what to believe, she says. Then a grim expression turns bright, and Jasmine suddenly smiles, saying, This is my point. This is the situation. We are entering an era where, in lieu of physical certainty, nothing can be believed past a gray sense of clarity. A gray sense of what? This world is being remade, she says. Bright, insane eyes stare at him. Remade, she repeats. Just ten days ago, I launched my own voyage. Under the supervision of an excellent doctor, of course. Of course. The Collector of Sweet Impossibilities The smartest person in the room finds a chair waiting for her. Two sorry-looking parents sit together, holding hands, while a beefy uncle sits between her husband and her boyfriend. Several colleagues representing her dull ex-job form their own group of interventionist Nazis. There are other people, too. A surprising assortment of faces and backgrounds, most linked to her over the last several months. Their lives and hers meshed together by chance. That is what is so wonderful about the world today. Entire universes percolating out of the random meeting of eyes. There is a significance and a beauty in this age. Claiming the hard folding chair, she smiles at everybody, while the biggest mind in the room begins composing the essay that she will post under the name that she has managed to keep secret from everyone. They think that they have her trapped, but she isn't trapped. That's why she's so relaxed, enthusiastic, and happy. The best pieces of her remain free and invisible, and they can't begin to appreciate the enormity and the depth of her many lives. Jasmine says her mother. That's you, her father says. Those other names are crap. Some people flinch hearing that tone. Always wanting to play the peacemaker, her husband leans forward and waits for her eyes. Once she looks at him, he says, Names don't matter, honey, which is an exceptionally foolish thing to say. Whoever you are, I love you and I want to help you. Do you understand that? They want her to be insane, a multiple personality disorder, or some routine schizophrenia that would make everyone's jobs easier. Sick people need help, and if she was ill, she might someday appreciate these stern measures. Besides, the treatments and medicine and that vocabulary of smart-sounding words would give the supposed loved ones the illusion of understanding. You're sick, her husband says. But she isn't sick. This is about the drugs, her mother says. Which is like claiming that oxygen is the cause of wise words. Her father grimaces and bends over. Torn up by grief? That man, and almost everybody else, is helpless with what is happening. That is the fundamental problem in this sorry circumstance. She looks for allies, for weakness. Every face is interesting, but the most intriguing person is the boyfriend. They met during the last session at the camp. He was 17 and nearly as far into the Lot 9 treatments as she was, which certainly played a role in the subsequent events. Two people, possessed by shared imaginations, and they understood their situations as soon as their gazes met. After that first sleepless night, they were joined in ways that hadn't existed before that moment. Sitting outside the cabins, under the full moon, the boy made up a name for her, and she did the same for him. And embracing their new identities, they invented lives and lived them in their minds and believed each other's genius. The boy said that he was the youngest child of two famous biologists who made billions from medical patents and now lived at sea in a sleek boat designed to hunt sea serpents and treasure ships. He said that despite his build, he was a top-notch athlete who had set records in the sports of his own invention. And he had written three novels on three different weekends. And oh, he had lost a brother. A handsome, strong, much older brother who was abducted earlier this year by pirates. And while he talked, she talked. Her story had to be just as amazing, just as fun. They were singers sharing a duet on a warm summer night. She explained that she was a time traveler from the deep past, brought to this odd day by the lost magic of Atlantis, and she missed her marble home and her pet sea serpent, which she named and described in detail, for being a person who had never happily read a novel in her life, she found herself to be mesmerized by her limitless creativity. She could think up the most amazing details and wrap them in a story told well in her first attempt. Before that summer, back when she was foolish, she thought stories were collections of words. But that wasn't the case at all. A story was a curling line moving through four dimensions, mathematical and deeply magical in its nature. And good stories were songs defined first by their rhythm and the sound of the words, and only, lastly, by the words used and their order. At three in the morning, the boy's new life and hers joined together in one grand, world-spanning adventure. Villains fought them, and idiot governments put up blockades, but by dawn they had found Atlantis and the Golden Fleece, and the boy had killed a lot of pirates before rescuing his lost brother. The woman and the boy didn't touch that night. There was much talk about sex, yes, but actions had consequences that were best avoided for now. So for the rest of the week, they used coded conversations while sitting on opposite sides of dead fires. Each evening, they gave each other a new name and told epic tales that hadn't existed before and nobody else would ever remember. Then the week ended. "'and the boy's elderly parents came to the camp to retrieve him. "'And she introduced herself and shook their hands, "'and when she shook the boy's hand in the end, "'it was the first and last time "'that she physically touched his flesh. "'You're not listening to us,' her husband complains. "'No, I'm listening,' she says insistently, laughing brightly. "'But nobody is giving me any noise worth hearing.' Her former colleagues decide that this is the time to act, and they want to be very mean about it. Jasmine has been a mess since the summer, they claim. Yes, at work she pretended to be her normal, reliable self, and sometimes she managed to fool them. For a time she could fool them, but she never seemed to be able to make it through a day without creating a ludicrous claim and boast, and work didn't get done because of the phone calls from people who knew her by other names. One ex-friend complains about a lunchtime adventure where Jasmine told strangers that she was a hostage and needed help and this fat lady standing beside her had a gun and someone should please knock her down and call the police? Jasmine is barely listening. What about this poor boy, her husband asks, motioning to the high school student. Don't think for a minute that I don't know, that we don't realize what... What happened between you and him? That's the big reason you got suspended, says the bitchy fat woman from the hellhole where stupid people work. Those long, long, crazy conversations with an underage boy. Here it is. This is the answer. The folding chair doesn't want her anymore. She feels herself being flung up onto her feet and smiling. She stares at the good, fine boy with his newborn genius and his always handsome face set above a skinny, graceless body that she knows by so many routes besides touch. He lives 50 miles from her house, but at least until last week, they saw each other almost every day. Then his stupid old parents took away his last phone and the computers. And it seems like ages have passed since they last shared so much as a quick and slick little fantasy. The moment is perfect. His absence makes her hungry, makes her ready. Pretending that she wants to talk to her husband, she approaches him and then pauses, waiting for the boy to look at her. Then she invents a language and a name and she gives him the name and their game starts once again. But the eyes that she saw in the summer and on the computer screens, the brilliant, fascinated, wondrous eyes, have been stolen away. In a voice that only seems familiar, he tells her, no. He says, I can't. What is this? She asks. What no? What can't? My folks, the boy begins. His parents pulled him off the lot nine, her husband says. But he isn't finished with the treatment, she says. It's too soon. Too early. The blessings couldn't melt away. Her father groans and bends over her mouth to his knees. These are illegal drugs, her mother says, and you've taken them for far too long. The smartest mind in the room watches nobody but the boy. And then the boy says the very worst word possible. With a slow, careful voice, he calls her Jasmine. She never stops amazing herself. In her old life, she would never have seen all the good reasons to become angry. But there are good reasons. Dozens of them. And in the course of just a few moments, she inflicts so much good pain in one idiot's face. The Adventurer Returns Home Victor thinks of himself as being a lucky man even out of work for a year, which is a bad stretch. He senses that better things are coming. Then an old friend puts him in touch with an NGO that wants help growing soybeans in the Horn of Africa. And as it happens, Victor knows beans, and ten years earlier he had been there in the Peace Corps learning his way around that beautiful, difficult part of the world. The salary is impressive. It has to be, what with the demands and the certain hard-to-gauge risks that come with working in that part of the world. In most cases, the risks are obvious. Disease, accidents, loneliness, and the like. But his new boss warns Victor that NGOs sometimes have reputations for being tools of governments, and in particular, the CIA. You'll be watched, he's told, and your computers and phones are going to be hacked, just to see if you are what they're afraid of. But I'm not a spy, Victor says. You're not, his boss agrees. And we aren't involved with the CIA, Victor adds. The boss nods in a certain way. Are we involved? How would I know? (laughs) The man laughs for a moment, helping nothing. Then he says, But if there is a misunderstanding, and if you are put in a difficult situation, this is for you. He hands Victor a smart card, tied to an unfamiliar Swiss bank. What's this? We don't pay ransoms, his boss says, but if something was to go wrong, you have a pool of money ready to be used in an emergency. With the card and his passport wrapped to his body, Victor says goodbye to his parents and his kid brother and flies a sequence of planes ending up on a dry, high patch of mountains full of people that haven't changed in a thousand years. He loves the country. He has forgotten how simple and fun life was here. And why did he ever leave? Work is hard, but success outnumbers the failures. He makes new friends and takes a lover. A beautiful widow who isn't yet 20. And after the first year, they are married, and she is pregnant, and he travels to the nearest city on a business trip where he can use the internet for the first time in a long, long while. That's where he's kidnapped. The mistake was leaving his familiar ground, and maybe he was careless, but he has a smart card and he knows how to talk to kidnappers, or at least it seems that he makes real progress. They're little better than kids who are wrapping politics around what is essentially a business venture, and the card will make them wealthy, and he expects to be sleeping with his young wife by the end of the week. But there are troubles at work here that he can't see and probably never will understand. Victor's best guess is that both the card and he have been given to a second, more powerful group as payment for some old debt. Whatever the reason, he is given to older, less worldly men, far greedier men, and they put him in the trunk of a car that bounces for hours, finally reaching what is probably the capital city. The available funds are not enough, Victor learns. In fact, they are an insult. He tries to help his captors, Isn't that in everybody's best interest? He offers important phone numbers and words of advice, and the men leave him tied up inside a hot little room with a bucket as a toilet and guards sitting outside. He's left to think and be afraid, and weeks become months, and there are always negotiations underway. And Victor's told that the NGO and Washington and the CIA and the new president are his enemies. Nobody wants to help him. Nobody understands the severity of a situation, which they try to impress upon their prisoner by occasionally dragging him into a second room, where they beat him until the fun is spent. In despair, he steers them towards his parents. They're retired people, with very little money of their own, he warns, but Victor has a healthy retirement account and various other funds that can be tapped— but his parents prove unhelpful. Apparently, there are quite a few people calling them, claiming to be in possession of their oldest son, and the kidnappers mention sending a finger or ear to prove their genuine claims. After that, Victor counts the hours, the minutes, and he makes plans. Violence isn't in his nature, but despair is magic. And even though the guards are armed, they're bored and untrained in their craft, and the cruelest man among them has a fondness for American westerns and holsters worn on a swaggering hip. Victor's plan requires a moment that will come with little warning. His guards burst into the room one morning, and they partially untie him, wanting to clean him up enough for a photograph. that will prove to the world he's still alive and relatively healthy. The pistol is easy to grab and use. Victor shoots the worst man first before turning on the other three, every shot doing damage and nobody left to keep him from slipping out the back window of the safe house, escaping into the mayhem of the city. Returning to his wife is what he wants most, but Victor has no money and no support, which is why he walks straight to the U.S. Embassy. And that is the moment, as he steps into the protective embrace of his homeland, that everything becomes even stranger. A woman from the State Department listens to his story without interest. The kidnappings, the beatings, the killing of four armed men? She claims to believe him, but he has the distinct feeling that he could say anything, and she would just nod like this, saying, yeah, of course, with the same dreary lack of feeling. The NGO remembers him, but nobody can find Victor's former boss or any of the man's underlings. Some great event is sweeping through the organization, and nobody is able to give him a straight story. Excuses and fantasy swirled together in what makes a Kafka novel seem bland by comparison. Of course, he calls his parents. They say that they are glad to hear he's alive and safe, and they have been very worried, of course. But when he talks about shooting his way out of captivity, their voices turn doubtful, even angry. Can he talk to his little brother? No, the addict's back in treatment, Dad says, and that's probably where you need to be, too. A replacement passport is promised. But the luckier blessing is one Marine guard, a serious and very dull boy from Wisconsin, who sits down with the shell-shocked former hostage, telling him a fantastic story about chemicals. Dangerous, devil-brewed chemicals destroying the Western world. Victor calls him a liar. The boy laughs and says, I wish I was, then steers into the last lucid sites on the internet where the bare bones of this madness are described. A plane ticket home is provided. Victor hasn't seen his wife in 11 months. She and his baby are the priority. But the one State Department official who seems to know the region warns that there are rebels on the loose, and the town he loved more than his birthplace has been hit by bombs and fire. Maybe some of that ordinance coming from drone strikes because of the terrorist activities, and they deserved it. Victor borrows bus fare from the Marine and leaves immediately. The city where he was abducted sits between the capital and the mountains, and he can't help but fear the worst while praying that the next bus arrives earlier than scheduled. But no, his connection is late, and he sits for hours in the grimy terminal, keeping his foreign face as invisible as it can possibly be. The mountain bus finally arrives. With his bag in hand, Victor hurries to the front and by chance spies a striking young woman carrying a newborn from the back of the bus. Then she sees him, and 40 feet apart, husband and wife collapse to their knees, enfeebled by their unexpected, well deserved joy. There haven't been airstrikes in their hometown, it appears. Victor's wife was coming to the city to find him and to rescue him if she could and she is the first and maybe only person to believe his tale of guns and despair. Unfortunately, his happiness proves temporary. After two nights in a cheap hotel, Victor falls into a deep, hard depression. The radio is filled with chaos. The United States and Europe are battling an influx of Lot 9, which is now being synthesized by at least 20 different criminal enterprises. He can still fly home, yes there's no way to take his little family, even if that's what he wanted. The world might collapse tomorrow, and he can't sleep through the night, and he truly doesn't know what to do. But then, this beautiful, slender, and loving woman, who has seen so much and endured it all with good cheer, tells him that he is an idiot. She reminds him that he is the luckiest man on earth, sane and educated and possessing what? by local measures, are great resources if only he can reach them. And that's when Victor decides to risk everything on one last trip to a nation that is falling into oblivion, grabbing up his savings while he is there and then trying to get home again. The plane ticket is one way. Alone, he flies to Heathrow and then starts toward Chicago. But some unexplained incident makes the pilot steer south. He ends up in Miami, facing a long layover. But that is no disaster. Expecting the worst, Victor's pleased to discover that most people seem sane enough to function. The terminal is clean, the planes aren't crashing. Only one or two travelers talk about leaving this world for alien realms. Even better, there's a string of news stories claiming that only twenty percent of the population is addicted at present, and treatments are improving with experience. Although One ominous item buried in the Times talks about a Malaysian group pumping billions into research for a much more potent Lot 9 prime cocktail. With time to spare, Victor decides to kill a few helpless neurons. He is sitting in the airport bar when a familiar face enters. The man sees him instantly and makes a decision, approaching Victor and saying, I know you, while offering a warm hand. The man is tanned and prosperous but otherwise, he's changed very little. We went to school together, Victor guesses. High school, wasn't it? Exactly, yes. Quite a few years ago, yes. Victor guesses the man's name. The man nods and sits on the stool beside him, and while ordering a ginger ale, he graciously tells the bartender to get his friend another good beer. Victor isn't sure he has the right name, but he says it again. We sat next to each other in biology? In Larry Whitmore's class, his companion says. Right! You had a baby brother, I remember. I did! The man sips his ginger ale. A memory teases. You're going to be a doctor, says Victor. Except my grades were miserable, the man says amiably. By the looks of things, you've done all right. I guess I have. Victor sips the new beer. And what is your story? His old classmate asks. What can he tell? Nothing would sound credible, he decides. So he quietly says, I'm between jobs right now. I see. Then Victor says, But you do look like a doctor. Yes. You have a physician's presence. The man stares at him for a long while. Then he turns his head, studying every other face in the crowded bar, checking the ceiling and the hallway outside, before turning his intense gaze back on Victor. Then, with a voice that's too believable, too certain, he says, Well, I'm not a doctor, and I never will be. <laughs>
2: There you go, don't forget copyright is Robert Reed. I'll put a like, I say, I'll put a link on to Bob's site so you can have a look over there and you know delve into the works what Bob's done. Bob, thank you so much, and Eva, thank you as well. What a fantastic narration! Hopefully, we're going to get some more work by Eva as well to get on the show because just quality there, fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you. So now we're going to have a little promo by Dennis Lane, and actually, it's it's rather nice because Dennis is kind of describing his book, and he's going to give a little reading of the book as well, Dennis.
0: Talatu, a young adult adventure. Sixteen-year-old Talatu Idris is as desperate as anyone for the colony ship d'Artagnan's honour to arrive at Barnard's Star. There would be her first ever look at a real sky. There would be adventure, a chance to prove herself as a midshipman, and, most of all, she would be out from under the watchful eyes of her disapproving mother. However. Talatu gets more adventure than she bargained for. Captured by the surprisingly intelligent Jantua Cracks, she has to convince the planet's inhabitants that they should not turn every animal and plant against face. the human invaders. Talatu has to channel her Nigerian father's storytelling ability and what she has learned about Gaia to convince her captors that the first violent contact between humans and the Jantua Cracks. Is not the only way. In my new novel, I've tried to combine the language of my poetry with the pace of my short stories to create a sort of rite of passage for modern teens, where I take the reader through two's military training, capture, and journey through a dangerous wilderness, all this before she has to take on the mantle of defender of the human colony. two is a young adult novel in the Heinlein juvenile vein but with a 21st century sensibility. And, while it is aimed at young teens, it's suitable for all ages, so adults can enjoy it too. Now, I think that's enough talking about the novel. Here's a taster for you. Watarana shekaru aruaru da sukawuche That's how my father always began stories, which, very roughly translated from the hausa, means once upon a time. So... Once upon a time, there was a girl called Talatu. She was a special girl, born on a Tuesday, which is what her name meant in the language of her forefathers. But being born on a Tuesday is not what made her special. It was the fact that she was born on a ship, travelling between the stars. She was the apple of her father's eye, and would sit on his knee as he told her stories about his home in northern Nigeria, on faraway earth little Talatu would waddle around following her father down the lines of plants that he tended and she would sing along with him as he named all of the plants for her she was Yasakini Talatu princess Talatu and her father was the king of a land of flowers and fruit of strange smells and jets of water that always seemed to catch her unawares princess Talatu was the happiest girl on the whole of the ship, but life is not a fairy story. Little Talatu grew up. Talatu Idris, you're asleep again. Concentrate on your lessons and see me after class. What a way to wake up! I looked around the classroom while surreptitiously pinching myself. I wanted to make sure that I was really awake this time. Anyone who knew me at the time, even in passing would not be surprised at all that I started my story asleep. I was always waking up tired and, at any given moment, could be found having a quick snooze. Warrant Officer Clooney said that once I got control of my gift, it would make me a better soldier, as the ability to catnap at any time or place is key to surviving protracted contact with the enemy. As I didn't actually want to be a soldier... And any potential enemy could be sixty light-years away back on Earth, I thought that the point may well have been moot. Of course, as our mission was to fly to Campbell's Star, and for all we knew it could be crawling with hostiles, I guess that Warrant Officer Clooney's advice was pretty good. Anyway, if I am to tell my story, I need to start in Miss Rue's class, for it was there that my journey really started. It was because of her. "'that I began to grow up. "'I think that it's very important to be honest, "'and so I'll put this all down as it happened, "'warts and all, as they say. "'I want to make sure that you can understand "'what I was thinking at the time. "'Looking back, I'm pretty embarrassed by how I was then, "'but, in my defence, I was just a kid. "'I'm sure that Miss Rue was really only concerned "'that one of her pupils was always falling asleep. "'But, to give her credit, She did want to do something positive to change that. I just couldn't see it at the time. I know that it must be frustrating for a teacher to have a pupil fall asleep on them. But really, dialectic argument? We were heading into the unknown as part of Earth's colonization effort. Surely there were more important things to learn than that. I glanced around the classroom and there was Matt smirking. I would deal with him later. Miss Rue carried on with the lesson. Some people may feel that classical philosophy has no place on a colony ship like the d'Artagnan's honour. She turned her pasty sheep-like face towards me and I reddened. Could she read minds? However, she continued, if we are not to end up as some utilitarian militaristic dictatorship, then the liberal arts have a very important place in a rounded education. You may need to learn engineering or agriculture, and I'm sure that your apprentice days are both interesting and useful. But, unless one learns to stretch one's mind, you will forever remain parochial, no matter how far we travel from earth. As Miss Rue spoke, I was nodding. She may not have believed it, but, in principle, I agreed with her. I actually enjoy learning. It's not my fault that she could bore the pants off a virgin nun in a chastity belt. School finally came to an end, and my mates filed out of the classroom, leaving me to the tender mercies of Miss Rue. She's not the worst of teachers, I guess, although, having lived my whole life on the dart, I have a very small sample to go on. However, one thing that Miss Rue most definitely is, is a stickler for the rules. To my constant pain, sleeping in class had risen in the charts and for the past year had been undisputed number one in the hit Talatu parade. Talatu! I was drifting again and my teacher's sharp tones brought me back. What can we do with you? I've seen your quarterly medical reports and there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. Your mother tells me that you get enough sleep. So what is the problem? She regarded me with her large, watery eyes. I don't know, miss. I was brilliant back then. Sixteen years old, and all I could say was, I don't know, miss. Well, I'm afraid that I cannot tolerate this any longer. If she'd been tolerating it, she could have fooled me. I propose a two-pronged solution. First, I need you to actually do some work. I expect a five thousand word essay on the history of dialectic by tomorrow. My eyes went wide. There went movie night flying out of the porthole. Second, I'm going to arrange for an appointment with Doctor Moon. If there is nothing physical, then we need to take a look inside that tired little brain of yours. But, but me no but. Tell to. I will speak to your mother about this, and I know that she will concur. Now I can see that Margareta Becker is loitering outside, so run along. Yes, miss. I kept my head down and left without another word. I knew that anything else that I said would just dig me deeper into the mire. Maggie was in the corner waiting for me. Geez, tell. what is it? she asked. A five thousand word essay. That's not so bad. And I have to see Dr. Moon. Maggie tutted. So, Rue the you thinks you're crazy? Apparently so. I stomped off down the rim, Maggie following quietly, not wanting to twist the knife that I could feel sticking out of my back. How was I ever going to live down being sent to the shrink? I thought that it was probably best to give Miss Rue the time to talk to Mum before I got home. So Maggie and I headed south along the rim until we got to the kids' commons. I needed a chocolate shake. In a quiet corner to sulk in. Well, I hope you enjoyed what you've heard so far. For more information and links to both the ebook and paperback, plus my other books, please go to www.terrendreamarchive.com.
2: There you go. I'll put a link on Dennis's site there so you can pop over if that takes your fancy. Well, that is show two Put to bed
3: before I go. Hi, this is Jack McDevitt, and you're listening to Starship Sofa. These are pretty difficult times, and uh, if you would like to see the sofa keep rolling through the night skies, uh, you might think about becoming a monthly subscriber. Help where you can. Uh, we'll all appreciate it. Thank you very much.
2: There you go. If there's one thing you can think about doing as you finish this story, first off, you need a medal <laughs> getting through this show. But do th- think about, you know, donating, come, becoming a, a monthly subscriber. We've been going since 2006, you know what I mean? It's just staggering what we've done, what we've achieved. You know, won a, a Hugo Award, we've been nominated three times there now. So it'll be, you know, if you can kind of keep thinking about donating, that would be fantastic. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me.
3: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
4: Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of so activity procedure
1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle
2: set for us. Airlock will be in three, 2, 1...